0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. The last several years have been confusing to say the least. And I don't just mean because of COVID or various government policies or even wars going on in Europe or Asia or the Middle East. It's been confusing because it almost feels like we don't even know how to communicate with one another when it talks about some of the ideas and philosophies that are being thrown around. And every time we try to define it, whether it's wokeism or whether or not it's liberalism, nothing seems to quite describe what it is that we're currently experiencing. Well, today on this show, we're going to actually review some of the ideas, some of the attempts to actually explain and define what it is that we're experiencing in the West right now so that we can actually have a proper conversation about it. All of that and more coming up on this episode of making the argument. This is co-producer Hamilton. Thanks for joining us. If you aren't already a member of our Volley Chat, I hope
1: you will go to the link in the description of this show. Introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and where you're from. We look forward to meeting you. I think by the end of this episode, you're going to have a really good grasp on all the craziness going on here in the United States. I look forward to joining you along this journey to learn more about the subject.
2: And I am the other co-producer, Sour Patch Lids, happy to be joining you once again today. I personally am really excited for this conversation. When it went down with Bethany over the definition of woke, I messaged her and I said, I'm sorry this is happening to you, but this is a really important conversation we need to have because we need to know what we're up against. And with that said, stoked for today's conversation. Let's get into it.
0: All right, Christian, take it away, man. This was this is your idea. You were adamant about this, so let's let's do it. All right.
3: So um, yes, this definitely was my idea. I was up until very late last night, kind of working out an outline that I, I think would would really help our audience understand what the heck is going on. Um, and believe it or not, I actually thought that the best way to start is with a paper that I ran into when I was writing one of my papers for grad school. Now. I know the audience is probably thinking, well, Christian, what does that have to do with what the left is, is doing today? Everything. And you will understand in a very short amount of time. Um, so I'm going to
1: read um, just a paragraph, really. And then I want. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Christian. How do you have that many tabs at the top of your screen? <laughs> um, that must be what a
3: hundred tabs. I'm 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 a crazy person. Yeah, it's about a hundred tabs. It, 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 it actually I, I chopped off like twenty tabs before we started recording. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I was really looking up like the list of presidents of Argentina for a Y minute that we were working on. So I I got those out of the way and. Um, yeah, I was getting to a point where there were so many tabs that I couldn't see them on screen. They were like bleeding off the Kinda screen. It kind of looks
2: like how a woman's brain feels.
3: <laughs> honestly. I, uh, so are, are you suggesting something to me? <laughs> um, we
2: always have all the tabs up. Yes. Yes, I am.
0: But, um, all right. so what, what is this paper and why is it relevant to okay. this discussion?
3: Um, well, let me just read it and okay. then I want everybody's reaction to something. I'm going to ask a question. Okay? okay. By the way, the audience, you are free to answer this too. Once I get to the end. Um, so, so. Um, This paper, I'm at the very conclusion, by the way, says, I'm going to begin right here with the word I. I foreground my whiteness, my gender. And my class position inside the North American Academy, not as any kind of disclaimer, but as a recognition of my own accountability and the ways in which it is shaped without being fully determined by the situations I occupy. I understand, too, that our perspectives as historians are shaped, again, without being ultimately dictated by the way we become professionalized and by the way the discipline of history is institutionalized in Western university settings. And then... Uh, The author goes on to say, you know, the nation state may no longer be appropriate for historical analysis, but, you know, we're still stuck in this whole concept that they call the artifice of history, yada, 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 yada. It's filled with a bunch of language that you've probably heard a million times before. So my question to every single one of you and to the audience is, what year do you think this paper was written? Oh, wow.
2: I figured that was very recent. I was like, ah, any guesses.
1: Any guesses? Pick a year, two. Twenty twenty 20, 15, Okay. And Nick, I got to go last.
0: I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 1975.
2: 1975. Lydia? I was going to say, I
1: was going to say 1982. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I actually already know the answer, but I, yeah, it, had I, you, if I didn't know the answer, I would lean towards what Tina said and I would say early yeah. 2000s. This sounds like something
3: that was written two or three years ago, yeah. right? Um, I'm actually pleasantly surprised in a good way that, that you guys were actually too uh, dated. This was written the year I was born, 1994.
0: Okay. Hmm.
3: Um, despite the fact that it sounds like it was something that was written two <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, believe it or not, ended up citing this paper in a paper that I was writing about the history of imperialism. That's not necessarily the point. The point is is that when I was doing research on this paper, I was writing a paper about the history of the British Empire and and the history of the history of the British Empire, um, historiography, right? And so I was trying to pull all these different approaches to this topic throughout different eras of history i went all the way back to the 1880s and so as i got closer to the 20th century i started finding more and more things like this mm-hmm. and so i had decided i mean th- this is what academia is talking about now so I, r- I included this in my paper i got an a on the paper but like i was stunned when i first ran into this this article i i i, I, I immediately thought i've done something wrong i must have pulled up an article from 2020 Um, no, I pulled up an article from 1994 and that's when I started realizing, oh, okay. So what people in academia were talking about 30 years ago is now what the general public is talking about on Twitter today. Yeah. That really informed a lot. And that is basically going to be the emphasis of today's episode of how we've gotten to this point. Um, as this, um, uh, political author, uh, Wesley Yang, um, he basically uh, um, took all of these different approaches together. What's happening within academia? What's happening within the financial sector? What's happening in Silicon Valley? What's happening in the federal government? What's happening in the media? He's taken all these different approaches and compiled them together into a grand unified theory of wokeness is what I'm going to call it. And the approach that he takes, he even gives a term to describe it because he he argues in this essay that he wrote a few years ago that, that the terminologies that have been used before don't necessarily m- hit the mark. And so what what's an example of a termino- terminology
1: that doesn't hit the mark?
3: Well, he, he he mentions it in this essay, but but I mean, some of the, the, the terms that we use is, is, you know, social justice warrior, right? right? Or
0: the far left, wokeness. Progressivism. Yeah, progressivism is a good, a good to example. Those... It, used, it used to be liberalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though that was never a, a really good description of... of what they're doing because when when we you, a lot of times you'll see people talk about classical liberalism and classical liberalism is not like the Democratic Party of the United States or the Labor Party in Great Britain or Canada. It's that's not what it is. Classical liberalism is is essentially what we think of when we we talk about certain concepts of Western civilization. Now, let me caveat this with the understanding that we all know we nobody has ever lived up to the actual ideals, you know, of of quote Western liberalism, but. Concepts such as equality before the law or that human beings have inherent worth and value, um, that that uh, conquest ethic is bad. You shouldn't just invade someone because you can. You shouldn't steal from somebody because you, you can, because you have the power to do so. Um, the The idea of, um, you know, objective morality, the idea of objective truth. Um, and And... Please keep in mind, when, when I say that these are elements of classical liberalism, that doesn't mean that they haven't been experienced by you know, other civilizations without time. It's, it's more of like a, a um, kind of a, a system or, or a process of thought. So logic, rationality, the laws of logic, um, the scientific method, these, these are all elements of classical liberalism. Uh, representative government, right? Um, property rights. Property rights. The, these are all. These can all fit within kind of the larger umbrella of classical liberalism, and that has informed a, a lot of countries, and, and specifically a lot of your your Western republics, democracies, and and things like that. It certainly was heavily influential within the creation of the United States. That doesn't mean that other things weren't also influential as well, but if you look through the Declaration of Independence, which is essentially like our statement of beliefs on, you know, what we believe about individuals, what we believe about the role of government, what we believe, you know, the grievances with respect to um the, the current government of Great Britain at the time, um all of that is rooted in in, in those ideas. And when you when you look at Um, progressivism or liberalism, or you look at um, certain policy objectives, obviously there's disagreements within that, that larger structure. There's disagreements with respect to what's the best policy to achieve. For instance, you know, greater uh, wealth distribution or economic mobility or voting rights, right? There's all arguments. But what was interesting is certain elements like freedom of speech or property rights or um, suffrage or things like that. Those things were were kind of considered on some level to be positive ends, and then it was just a question of okay, sh- who should it extend to? And as as time went on, we expanded those we expanded those different ideas and concepts. So initially, it was who gets to vote. All right, well, landed gentry get to vote. Okay, well, now it's the people that are actually going to fight in the wars get to vote. Like, okay, if you own property, the the tech, you're going to get to vote. And to eventually, we got to universal suffrage. Um you you look at you look at similar concepts with respect to to property rights, who is allowed to own things. And, and there's been an, an ever growing expansion and, and including people within that process over time. So there was always arguments about who should apply to to what level, what are certain restrictions that we should have on certain freedoms versus responsibilities. But the overall foundation or structure has been fairly consistent over time. So that if you were gonna make an argument to do something or not to do something. You usually had to fit it within that understanding of classical liberalism. The moment you departed from that, we we were talking about something that was very different from kind of you know the the philosophical ocean we were all swimming in. And now what we're seeing is, I, I think, a a very significant departure from that. We're we're talking about something that doesn't want to exist within that superstructure, within that structure. It's something that wants to supplant that and replace it with something else. Absolutely. You and mean
2: it doesn't want to coexist? <laughs> no, it, <laughs> no, it, it wants to
3: co-opt, not yeah. coexist. And and Yang gets to that. The reason I'm bringing this up is because, so I read this paper, right? And I was stunned that it was written 30 years ago. And that led me to think, how did we get to this point? Because that, that lit a, a light in my head where I realized, oh, okay, that's where people on Twitter are getting their terminology and language that they're from. That's how you see so many people parroting. That, that paragraph that I read, how many times have you heard somebody online say something almost identical to that? Mm-hmm. Using the same buzzword terminologies, phraseology, all that stuff, oppression, occupy spaces, decolonization, all that nonsense, right? Where did that come from? What is the driving force behind it? Why is it? does it even exist in the first place? So Yang answers a lot of these questions in this essay that he wrote titled, Welcome to the Year Zero. He wrote this in 2021. He's provided repeated updates since then, and he's talked about this over and over again. So um, uh, here's what Yang has to say. I actually read this um, uh, um, th- this essay after I ran into this paper, and I'm, I'm glad that now I can actually you know bring it up on, on this show because I think that some of the stuff that he says here is just in- in- incredible. Um, he goes on to say... Among Biden's first acts in office was to issue an executive order that is taken as a warrant by those keen to extend this mandate further into the provision of medical services by race and other areas to equalize outcomes wherever statistical disparities in outcome it, uh, persists. Those disparities are henceforth to be understood as the product of a foundational, pervasive, transhistorical, and unyielding racism They can only be dodged through the overt distribution of opportunity and reward by race in pursuit of equity, which has displaced mere equality as the aim of racial activism. Here's the the incredible part that actually ties into the paper that I was reading. The installation of these policies and the sea change in elite consensus, elite consensus is the important part, that they enact happen with little public deliberation or debate. Instead, we saw the policing of contrary views out of circulation, first by administrative authorities at universities and later through broader campaigns to stigmatize the common moral institutions of a supermajority of the American public. What were once held to be colorblind ideals of impartial treatment on the basis of individual attributes have been reclassified as a form of white supremacy on the pyramid of white supremacy." Presented as dogma in the now pervasive diversity, equity, and inclusion training sessions.
0: Yeah. So, what's I think what's important to understand here, and, and the reason why there's so much confusion, because we we talked about this before. Like the term of racism, racism used to mean one thing within the, kind of the Western liberal tradition, and it was the idea that you believed in the superiority of a particular race or the inferiority of another race because of the race. So that was, that was a term that could essentially apply to anybody or anything based off of the actions or the intention or the motivations of something. So if I made a statement, which, which clearly assumed the superiority of a particular race or the another, we would say that is a racist comment, right? If, if, if you then went on to, to try to implement policy, we would call that racist policy this idea that, no, 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 it, it only applies if you have some sort of power structure behind you in order to back it up, changed the way that we think about the definition of racism in a way that, from from a, again, a, a classical liberal tradition, doesn't make any sense. But if you view the world within these, this concept of power structures and that everything has been developed in order to, if if the most fundamental part of reality is power structures, in the sense that, Whoever's dominant at the time creates other structures of thought or education or economics or politics or social conventions, right? Whatever dominant force has created these, they have done it exclusively to benefit them at the expense of everybody else. If you accept that as as the foundation of your worldview, that that that's what best explains reality, it actually makes it impossible on on some level for you to come in and be like well wait a second logically that doesn't make sense well of course you'd use logic that's been designed by the dominant power structure in order to benefit you at the expense of everybody else well well no i'm i'm just trying to use you know scientific methodology in order to make observations about the observable universe to to say that this might have a, a cause and effect relationship oh well of course you would rely on the scientific method because that's a power structure that's so you, you see what we're talking about here Whenever we, whenever we try to use some sort of tool or implement to be able to separate fact from fiction or to be able to determine whether or not something is causal, right? this action led to this action, whenever it butts up against whatever the desired outcome is of this other ideology, in, instead of saying, well, no, no, I'm going to come up with a, a counter analysis to your – it's like, no, 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 you're not allowed to use that system anymore because that's representative white supremacy – because these these systems or processes, according to them, rose in prominence and became authoritative because white people insisted that it be so. And and what's so what, what is such a major departure from that is what it means is that if I'm gonna go and I'm gonna try to criticize the, the and I don't mean criticize in a in a negative, I just mean you know criticism in the academic sense. If I'm going to say, okay, well, I I wanna analyze the policies that you're putting in place in order to achieve something, they get to come back and say, well, by what method are you going to analyze it? Well, I'm going to use logic and the scientific method and rational thought. And, oh no, you can't use any of those. Well, I'm going to have a moral objection to oh, your okay, policies. Well then, then oh, gonna, well, uh, your morality was influenced by. Uh, yeah. And, well, and, and then it's, well, okay, well, what am I allowed to use? You can't because you're a white oppressor. Like it, It's impossible for you to, to properly understand. Now, here, here's, the, here's the crazy part about this, and this is the part you need to stick with me on all right, just for a minute. There is an element of truth in part of what they're saying, and that's perspective and institutions and experience. All of these things do affect the way that you view things. The question is, is there anything that's objective that we can, that we can all look at that regardless of our experience, regardless of our, you know, uh, a culture that we are raised in, is there anything that we can look at and say, this is a safe mechanism whereby regardless of where you're from, regardless of who your parents were, regardless of what language you speak, there's something here that we can actually utilize in order to arrive at a, at a conclusion about reality, about what happened and, and. The weirdest part of all of this is I don't even know what their answer would be at this point, except to say that if you fall within the oppressor class, the answer is probably no. You, You can't. There's no tool you can utilize. All you can do is review, listen, attempt to understand, and probably most importantly, obey what the oppressed classes tell you is necessary in order to gain some facsimile of redemption right you're you're never going to not be guilty it, it, if if but if you're willing to accept their interpretations their narratives and perhaps most importantly their policy positions you can on some small level receive some sort of redemption for past actions and the system which you occupy that benefits you unjustly that, I mean, that is a major departure from anything. I wouldn't even say Western civilization. That's a major departure in, in, in I would say, most modern civilizations are built upon. Because what you're telling me is there's no escape. There's just obedience.
2: I think right. it's interesting yeah. to point this out and call it Western. Because there is, to say that this is a a, a Western Western concept that, You know, oh, let's take genders, for example. That's a it's oh, it's a Western idea that men are men and women are women, you know, male and female or what. But you go to the you know, you go to other countries and. I mean, even some of the most remote countries get it and they know they know the difference. It's it's interesting.
3: Well, again, I think. A lot of those countries were previously colonized by Western nations. Oh, so that, that that'll be the, 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 that, the that, argument. That's, that's the answer that you're given whenever you bring that up. Lydia, you wanted to say something?
2: Yeah, so this was really interesting to me because I, as I've been paying attention to this, I've seen a lot of parallels between this and a religion. And one of the things that I noticed was that there is original sin. And originally I thought that it was some form of whiteness but to me it sounds like it's something much deeper what do you guys think about that because to me this just kind of seems like you're setting the stage so that you'll always win right so it's a little bit like it's always sunny in philadelphia i'm playing both sides so i always come out on top right they're they're constantly making it so that they will always be in the right and they can't be falsified in anyway and because they eschew ideas like logic um it makes it really really difficult to argue with them which is part of the reason it's hard to define these terms so what do you guys think about the religious parallel do you think there's anything to that
3: i think that's an excellent question lydia and and i think that that yang kind of gets to the heart of that in his essay Um, i there's a few more paragraphs of this that i want to read and again guys feel free to to interject whenever you want because I think that as we get further, I haven't even gotten to to the terminology that he uses yet to describe this entire process that's taking place. There's a word that he uses for for this entire process that that, that he thinks is necessary in order to identify what's going on, because a lot of the terms that have been used before only refer to a subsegment of the larger problem. And so he goes on to say in this essay, it took a decade or so for the theory of colorblind racism to move from academia to corporate America and another half decade for it to be explicitly endorsed by the federal government. It amounts to a quiet overturning of the post-1964 racial consensus. Cancel culture, which has created a situation in which 62% of the American public told pollsters that they are afraid to share their political opinions. By the way, fun fact, every single ideological group in the United States, with one exception, says that they feel pressure to uh, self-censor and not share their political opinions. Which group is that? Take a guess.
0: (laughs) I'm guessing Christian conservatives.
3: Oh, yeah, it's definitely... The the, the only ones not afraid? Yeah, Yeah. the Democrats. Oh, it's progressive. Yeah, it's it's liberal progressives. The the only ones... Every every group. Far-right, conservative-right, center-right, centrists, even center-left, even liberals. Everybody except for the most left-wing progressives say that they feel... Pressure to self-censor and not share their political views. Why, do,
1: Christian? Why do you think that they are so apt to be willing, with no fear, to share their ideology? By the way, when
3: I say every group, I mean a majority of every single group, yeah, right? Yeah. You, you have a you know small minority of oh, every yeah. group that, that disagrees with that, but that, that's why it's sixty-two percent. Mean, we're here doing it's this because podcast. They're the
2: in- yeah. new oppressor class.
3: <laughs> why? Why is that? Well, I think it's because of of, of this entire construct that's been created that has is infected multiple different institutions, and it's it's become a self-perpetuating machine. That 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 reinforces itself through things like shame,
0: canceling. Well, there's a there's a cost benefit anal- so there's there's a cost benefit analysis going on right now. So if you're a company, and um, and you say something, you know, it, it, and it, as long as you don't say something anti Christian, right, the vast majority of Christians are going to shop with you right? Or yep. as long as you don't say something anti one thing or another, the vast majority of people are still going to do business with you as long as you're not targeting somebody for exclusion or, or yep. for something like that. Okay. But it's a little bit different on the woke progressive side. There you have to actively celebrate. If you're not actively celebrating, you're treated as if you're excluding or you're discriminating against. And so, and, and nobody wants to be associated with discrimination. Nobody wants to be associated with exclusionary policy. So there, there's a, there's an apparatus, which is incredibly power, very loud and powerful and, and influential to where if if you don't celebrate certain things, then you're considered part of the problem. You're not being, you're not being a, a, you're not a sufficient ally. And, and so the cost associated with doing that will be that not only will the people that you have potentially alienated within, you know, the, the population, not only will they not do business with you, they will actively go out of their way to find ways to either through boycotts or through legal ramifications or through suing you or through um, you know character assassination, they they will come after you. And a, a significant portion of the population right now, since they're they so they're so dedicated, to this idea of being seen as an ally or seen as you know generally supportive, they don't want to continue to do business with somebody that they feel like is, is going to cause them problems, especially if there's alternatives. So you move a lot of these companies into a category from a cost benefit analysis standpoint it doesn't make any sense to not go along with the general narrative because popular culture seems to be pushing it. And oh, by the way, even if the majority of people don't like it, if it's not enough to get them to stop doing business with you, but it is enough to get this other group to stop doing business with you, or there's a certain group of the population that says, I, I don't know. And I don't care. All I know is that I don't want to be associated with the controversy. Well, then you you go the path of least resistance. So there, there is pain associated with, with not, you know, basically at least giving some sort of hat tip or nod to the, to the kind of the woke, uh, agenda, but, but under- and there really isn't one by not giving a nod to what you might call the conservative agenda,
3: but uh, exactly. But understand that, that, that pain is, um, as Yang brings up, he, 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 calls it a means to an end, um, the sentence that I was reading, he, he says that cancel culture, which has created a situation where 62% of Americans say that they're they're afraid to share their political opinions, was always simply a means to an end. The noisy herald of a mandated adherence to new dogmas to come. The agenda is here today in the process of being rolled out at scale across a range of institutions. We talked about that before, including K-12 through schools. We've also talked about that before. Yeah. The means must therefore be judged in relation to the ends they have secured. They are already begun, um, They have already begun to transform the schools. We saw that at the beginning of this podcast, right? You know, in academia, the stuff that they're talking about today, they were talking about 30 years ago. Um, they've already begun to transform the schools and exert influence over law enforcement in ways that are changing the character of education and city life. How far this will go, what sorts of resistance it will meet in the courts and other venues, whether the institutional consensus around it will uh, hold firm in the face of political resistance, all of this is to be determined. What is not in dispute, though, is that the federal government and other private entities have already crossed the Rubicon and signaled a willingness to defy legal precedent and public opinion in accordance with the ruling consensus of the new regime they have thereby inaugurated. I call this regime the successor regime. He also calls it the successor ideology. And the reason that he calls it the successor ideology is actually quite simple. He goes on to define the successor ideology as, quote, the peculiar species of authoritarian utopianism sweeping through the ruling institutions of American life. Um, And the reason that he uses this phrase... And then I'd love to get some feedback from people. The reason that he uses this phrase, successor ideology, is because he says that other names that are used for this doctrine tend to express either adherence, social justice, critical studies, or hostility, such as cultural Marxism and political correctness to refer to one, one of its many constituent parts, right? So anti-racism, post-structuralism, deconstruction, uh, um, deconstructionism, post-colonialism, gender theory, these are all aspects of a broader whole. They're not the entire thing in of itself. Um, so, so then he says that these are all constituent parts of an ideology that is more than the sum of its parts. He goes on to conclude that successor ideology is simply a placeholder term that performs a necessary function.
0: Well, and, and so we we talked about this a little bit. Like my problem with successor ideologies, I don't think it tells us a whole lot about what the movement actually means, except that it wants to supplant the current one. And and again, we're, we're not talking about supplanting things as in we had a Republican administration and then a Democrat administration, right? For most of, for, for at least a significant part of human history, you might've had these peaceful transitions of power, but they were all within a particular structure. We kind of knew the rules of the game. Um, and, and therefore, even when there were disagreements with respect to... Okay, you know, we, we got to a point in society where, like, all right, every all the all the different political parties, all the different groups, agreed we shouldn't have slavery. Then the question was, okay, well, then how do you how do you make up for it? Right? Was it forty acres and a mule? Was it just equality before the law? Was it affirmative action? Right? But but all of those were arguments that were being made with certain understanding about restitution for you know wrongs being done, or property rights issues, or you know uh, being you know having full uh, the franchise within society, like. They, they were still arguments within that structure. Now we're talking about something that, again, is a complete departure. And so there's a couple of terms that he uses here. The authoritarian utopianism is one that I actually like a little bit more because I think it, it talks about two things. One, utopianism is, is kind of an interesting term because it technically means no place, but it's, it's been used to actually mean like the ideal society. Mm-hmm. So that, that's your equity right? Because equity actually has an inherent moral meaning. It generally means fair and impartial, or it means a just outcome. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know many people that don't want an equitable society in the sense that they believe that the right things are happening to the right people for the right reasons at the right time in the right place, right? Which is to say that you, you do a good job, you work hard, you're able to provide for yourself, your family, um, you know, all, all of those, all of those concepts, right? You get sick, you're able to get medical care, you're hungry, you're able to get food. Um, those are all things that I think we all generally agree are, are good outcomes. It's all a question of how you achieve them. So that's that's the utopian part. The authoritarian part is very interesting because one of the things that you see as a general consensus amongst all of these people, so some people might be more focused on the racial component. Some people within this larger successor ideology, right? Some people might be more focused on racial. Some people might be focused on identity and LGBTQ+, right? Some people might be more focused on class or, or what they... Considered to be, um, you know, an distribution of resources, right? So there's there's economic components, there's identity components, there's racial components, there's other social components, right? That that are all a, a main focus. So where where are the where are the points of agreement? Well, the points of agreement along them all seem to be this idea that yeah, Western liberalism is a sham. Yep. Right. Classical and not Western. Classical liberalism is a sham. Logic, reason, scientific, like these, these things are a sham. That doesn't mean they can't use them when it suits their purpose, but ultimately these are all structures that have been created by cisgendered, heterosexual, white men in order to benefit themselves at the expense of everybody else. That seems to be a unifying component within the larger, you know, the, and their method for solving it is through authoritarianism. It, it's through the idea that the oppressed need to actually attain more power. So that they can correct these wrongs and then replace them with something that will theoretically be more equitable. Now, what's interesting is when they actually get to that point, when you start to press them a little bit more on, okay, well, how do you achieve that? That's where you start to see the lines going back to critical theory, to Marxism. It's the idea that um, you know, it, we need some sort of democratic system for which the oppressors should probably be you know, relegated to the side which is going to decide the equitable distribution of resources and the equitable place for everybody within society. But that's, that's the source of organization and, and really to some degree morality for establishing who gets what, right? For achieving what equity looks like. It's not that they're saying, oh, well, we should each have greater freedom and individual liberty in order to pursue our, our, our goals and our in-states and to own property. And you know, some people are going to be doing better than other people, not because of racism or sexism, but because of choices or, or preferences. no, no, no. That doesn't work. And then the successor component, so the utopianism, and here's the objective. The authoritarianism, like, no, we're, we're going to seize the means of power in order to achieve this. We're going to use force in order to ensure more equitable distribution and re-education of people that don't understand that they've you know, either internalized white supremacy or systemic racism. They don't understand that that's, that's the ocean they're swimming in, so we have to re-educate them. And we're going to use authority and power to do it because... That's just how it works. And then the successor part is, and we're going to replace by by the process of doing those things, we're going to replace the current system. That needs to be thrown out. It is immoral at its foundation because it was developed by heterosexuals, cisgendered, white men in order to benefit themselves and everybody else. And so there's no redeeming it. There's no redeeming it. It has to be replaced. So when I when I hear those those three things in in I feel like it gives, it paints a better picture of they they want a a particular utopian that they've described in various ways. They want to use authority and power in order to achieve it, Mm -hmm. right? And and that's coercive power. Keep in mind, there's a difference between we're just going to use the power of coercive power to achieve it. And when, and at the end, they will have, you know, succeeded in completely replacing the current structure with this new one, whatever that might look like.
3: I've got two, um, somewhat concise definitions of of what successor ideology is that I'd love to run by you all and and get some sort of feedback. This is actually kind of the end of the the essay that Yang wrote, um, where he says, tying together an unwieldy and often contradictory assortment of claims is the underlying doctrine that of successor ideology, right? Is the underlying doctrine that Western culture is a matrix of interlocking oppressions advantaging some categories of people at the expense of others. And some examples that he gives are the white over the non-white, the male over the female, the straight over the homosexual, and the cisgendered over the transgendered, the abled over the disabled, and so on and so forth. And it's not just that. It's also including the belief that nothing short of total dismantling, decolonization, or abolition, these are also phrases that you've probably heard people on the left use, especially decolonization, Mm -hmm. right? It makes them sound intellectual when they say that. Um, I I, I think I actually have my own thesis on that, that like the reason they use certain phrases the way that they do is because it basically appeals to other people that are supposedly well-educated.
1: Let's get into that Um, later. I want to talk about that.
3: And so, and the belief that nothing short of a total act of, quote unquote, dismantling, decolonizing, or abolition of the various institutions that enact ongoing structural violence will suffice. That's another phrase that you've probably heard, structural violence. Yeah. Um, they love to use to word, uh, Um. Th- they love the word violence. Um, I-, I think maybe that's a bit of a Freudian slip, but, um, <laughs> and then he concludes with this. Although this language is hyperbolic and untethered from reality, it serves as a rallying call and statement of common purpose for the faction of those who speak it, the members of the activist class who work in the donor-funded nonprofit activist sector. Um, basically, what he's trying to get at here is that there is this term, he, he calls it successor ideology. He admits that that it actually has no no... Um, term. There, there is no grand unifying term that anybody agrees on that not even the left themselves agree yeah. on to describe these things. And I think that, by design. I think yeah. that is by design. That is absolutely by design. And we could get into that later. But but he has this, this term that he uses called successor ideology that he admits is just simply a placeholder term to describe all of these interlocking efforts that we have talked about on this podcast before, right? We, we, we've talked about many different things. We've talked about the race hustlers. We've talked about the transgender movement. We've talked about gender ideology. We've talked about intersectionality and third wave feminism and all these different things. They seem like they're separate. And they also seem like they've all become crazy in the last three years. What he's trying to argue is, is that it's all actually really one, manifesting itself in many different aspects. And those different aspects Are what we call these different individual groups, right? You know the anti-racism stuff, the, the 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 trans stuff, the gender stuff, the the ESG stuff, and and what what they're trying to achieve is is a common goal, but they're all going about it in different ways, right? So the analogy that I I was using with Hamilton when I was talking to him about this, and I pitched this idea for this episode, was that they're, um, you know, let, let, let's say that you're, you're, you know, running an army, right? And you're assigning different units to different objectives in order to achieve a common goal, right? So, you know, the infantry is not going to be shooting at planes in the sky. That's not what they're good at, right? And so they're targeting this. You know, the Air Force will be targeting that. The Navy will be targeting that. The Navy is not going to be focused on, you know, securing Colorado, right? <laughs> like, like that's it, it, just not yeah. their job, right? Yeah. And so... so each one of these different, you know, movements, they're all fighting supposedly separate things, but they're really all pushing for the same thing. And there's a 30-minute clip, actually, not 30-minute, 30 30-second 30
1: clip. That'd be a, that'd um. be a long clip.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's this 30-second clip where, where, where Yang really summarizes this in even shorter, um, you know, in, in an even shorter context than what I said earlier. And so if there's anything that the audience really wants to get away from in this episode, if they want to understand what is going on and they want to ever use this term in their own discussions with people, this is probably a good way to go about doing that.
4: Ideology is what its main trauma. Let's get the highest level of generality. Successor ideology is that which conceives of white supremacist, patriarchy as a unitary system of domination that must be attacked on every front. And so there's a series of different movements that address each one of those aspects, but there's an overall sense that there's a sort of conceptual unity to those things, such that the attack on the one is the attack on all of the others. So if you look at, for instance, one of the sort of paradigmatic documents of what I think of as a successor ideology, you know, there's a manifesto posted online by the nonprofit organization or the, I think it's actually a for-profit organization that is the sort of institutional anchorage of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And this is distinct from the the meme and and distinct from the movement in the street. There's like an actual organization that purports to speak on behalf of the movement and to give it ideological direction and aims. And it sort of speaks about policing and police brutality. But it also says, like, we were dismantling the nuclear family. It says that no one is free unless the black trans person is free. And when you think of the people who are marching on behalf of this, like, in what sense is this their ideology, right? Like, in what sense is this is like the population sort of most subject? Right. And the answer is that there may be obviously a few people who would take part in those protests who believe all of those things. But the great majority of people who are out in the streets in in early June or late May don't believe most of
3: those claims. So notice how, I I, I intentionally let it run a little bit longer. Um, He shortened it by saying successor ideology is the belief that society, every aspect of society, from institutions all the way to our moral worldview, philosophy itself, not the act of engaging in philosophy, philosophy itself. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from our governing institutions, our social institutions, private institutions, cultural worldviews, philosophy, morality, even physics, Ev- everything you can think of has been created and informed and built by cisgender heterosexual white males for the benefit of cisgender heterosexual white males. And in order to achieve, and and an, an not only that, but those Structures, those institutions have had a negative impact on everybody that is not a hetero or cisgender, heterosexual, white male. And so, in order to achieve a more equitable society, we must tear down every single one of those institutions. So, successor ideology seeks to succeed what we call classical liberalism, it seeks to replace it, which is also part of the reason that it uses a lot of the terminology believe it or not. It uses a lot of alien terminology. Yes. But it also uses a lot of similar terminology to classical liberalism. Notice how they use phrases like reproductive rights Mm -hmm. or reproductive freedom, trans rights, social justice, equity. These are terms equality. These are terms that 20 years ago, if we had heard the term right, freedom, justice, equality, we would have equated those terms with classical liberalism. Oh yeah. no, they,
0: they they get their policies from Marx and they get their marketing from Jefferson. <laughs> I mean it, it's 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 crazy. They they understand that you can't if you're gonna come in here and you're gonna come to the United States right now at a time that, that comparatively speaking, has, has more freedom, more prosperity, more security than almost any other point in, in human history, right? More opportunity, regardless of who you are, who your parents are, than almost any other point in human history. You're not going to come in and win the argument with, we need to seize the means of production, right? The proletariat needs to come over here and we need to, we need to kill these people and take their stuff and better redistribute. You're probably not going to win with that. But if you can couch it in the language that the society is generally bought, brought up buying into, and you can convince them that the actual manifestation of rights and liberty and freedom and equality and justice is your ideology and your policies and your process, then you can subvert it. And and, and it's amazing because I I also think there, there is a there's very much an atheistic component to this. Now, some people will look at that and be like, what are you talking about? There's all kinds of progressive pastors and everything like that. You'll notice the way that that progressive pastors and everyone else talk about this stuff. It's never where like Jesus or the Bible or whatever religious text we're talking about is authoritative. And therefore we should adjust our values based off of that authority. It's always from the perspective of, I will quote scripture, or I will quote the Quran, or I will quote, and really you don't see this as much in Islam, or I will quote, um, um, the Torah insofar as I believe the quote, Will reinforce what I've already decided is the ideologically correct position. So, so in, in those in those issues, the religion is not the foundation of the worldview. The religion may, in some you know, element, in some respect, be beneficial to their ideology. And because they at least understand that are okay, I'm not going to eradicate all of this and replace it overnight, right? Then it's useful. And, and I, I think we see more and more of this, and, and there's this quote by Malcolm Moveridge that I love, he goes, if God is dead, somebody is going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. And, and it's interesting because I look at the various groups and I look at the common objectives and I look at kind of the, the absolute rejection of what we would call traditional Judeo-Christian understanding of morality, objective truth, the idea that there's a source of morality outside of us. This is very important because you can point to it now and you can say, "This, this provides a framework for right and wrong. This provides a framework for understanding reality. And we're saying, no, we have to get rid of that. And that's helped inform classical liberal institutions. And we have to get rid of that. And so what are you replacing it with and what's the motivation behind it? Well, we've learned a long time ago that hedonism isn't sufficient. people It's not just enough to do things that, that have a, a, positive effect or a positive effect on your response to stimuli. right? People want to feel that what they're doing is not just um, good in the sense that it feels good, but that it's also just. There, there's like this drive for some sort of moral outcome or moral justification for their behavior. And as I look at these various groups and how they're working together and what they're trying to supplant, it's not just classical liberalism. It is Judeo-Christianity. Judeo-Christian values, and it's the replacement with this idea that you're being promised with respect to identity, right, especially on the the LGBTQ thing, there's there's this emphasis on the sexual component, the sexual nature of human beings, and if we could just get rid of all these different structures that are oppressive, you'd be able to fully realize all of your your sexual fantasies. And then on the other side, with, with some of the other components that you see, it's this idea that we have to achieve power, because the only way that we're going to achieve equity within society is if the right people, them, have power in order to impose it on the bad people, everybody that fits within the oppressor class. And so once again, there's this drive to try to create perfection through a combination of power and to some degree eroticism. And, and
3: ev- almost everybody who's who's listening to this show or watching on YouTube has probably lived through examples of successor ideology playing out in either their school or their workplace, or in some cases their family or their church even. Um, Because like we have a friend, for example, who um, his, his job has like gone full blown into like the equity diversity inclusion type of stuff. Um, And we've had conversations about it where, you know, he feel he's one of those 62% of people that feels, you know, pressure to self-censor his own political views
1: that if he doesn't put his pronouns in his email, in his email bio yeah. that he's gonna get he feels he like can he get could fired. get fired
3: or, or 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 not promoted or discriminated against in the workforce for not putting his pronouns in his email because that's what man that's what the middle management a lot of the, the people that are pushing this stuff are the middle management people yeah. you see this especially in like silicon valley and wall street where it's like you know Disney investors are furious at the company right now, but the company has done what it did because the middle management at the company is the one that bullied the executives into taking these stances on these fights against people like DeSantis in Florida over, over the the parental rights and education bill that took place a year ago. And, and I mean, that's just one example. How many times have you seen a news article about some university holding separate graduations for people based on their race or their skin color or their ethnicity or their sexuality or their gender? Right, and so like, there's so many examples. Apparently, they want to separate, um, uh, graduations by gender, but they don't want to separate bathrooms by gender. Right, like, like it's it, it's it's incredible how we see these examples, and and you know, conservatives or libertarians look at this and they're like, well, this is just crazy. But then they see another one, and then they see another one, and then they see another one, and then eventually, you just get to a point where you're just like, I'm just used to it. Like,
0: well, it, it, it it does, and the, and the main the main sort of frustration I think that we we see coming from people to watch this show is the, okay, but I, I don't get it. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to actually have, a conversation because I, I always, you're not, I, I always love this when I hear this, we need to have a conversation about race and we need to have a conversation about this. We need to have a conversation And it's, and I like the people saying this. I'm like, okay, well, we've been talking about these things for a long time. You just don't like what anybody except you has to say about it. You don't want a conversation. You want to be able to dictate terms. It's not even good enough that you can live however the heck you want. You just can't impose it on anybody else. That's not even good enough for you because you've decided that your position is so morally superior, not that it's just correct, not that he's even just correct for you. Like, I, I don't have a problem with saying, I believe this is the correct position for everybody. The difference is, is that I moderate that position. There's a lot of things that I will say, I think this is the correct position. I don't care who you are. I think this is just how the world works. I don't take the extra step of saying, therefore, do what I want, right? But again, they don't seem to have a problem with that because after all, if this is for your own good, then them not imposing it through the various power structures that they can take control of is doing a disservice to you. It's doing a disservice to justice in general. But to the point of, okay, well, how do you look back at someone and say, okay, well, wait a second, don't you understand that the mechanisms that you're trying to use, like, even if I agree with you uh, on some element with respect to um, the racial history of the United States. Even if I agree that there needs to be some, there needs to be education and there needs to be restitution and there needs to be different mechanisms that we put in place to ensure those things never happen again. Even if I agree with you on some elements there, the mechanism you're trying to use, I don't trust because I've seen how it's been used in history and and sold to people under these utopian concepts, only to then oppress, denigrate, and murder people. And the response is, is like, well, no, it'll be different this time. Or no, you're viewing that through the, through the lens of your oppressor status. Well, this is what is so dangerous about this. (laughs) If what you're telling me is that there's no possible mechanism where you and I can adjudicate differences and either develop a compromise, agree on a proper course of action, or at the very least leave each other alone. If one of these ideologies is going to win, and that's it, then what you're telling me is that there is no room for peaceful negotiation here. This is a conflict that ultimately ends in violence. Because you've adopted an ideology and a worldview which will not allow for peaceful coexistence. And so the inevitable conclusion is that it descends to violence at some point unless you can actually get to a point where you've convinced everybody that your view of this is correct. And even then the problem changes because like we said, there's multiple different groups with certain common objectives and certain common beliefs and convictions with respect to the way the society is organized who are currently working together. What happens when they win? What happens when the group right now, which presents the opposition, Right? Whether they want to call it white people, they whether they want to call it white conservatives, whether they want to call it Christian, whatever it is. When they're defeated, what happens to all those groups? Are, do they all just live in perfect harmony now? They'll turn on each other. By necessity, they will have to. This is the same reason why Marxism always talks about the revolution and exporting the revolution. It's why even when the revolutionaries won... They referred to anybody that ever had any opposition as counter-revolutionary. The revolution is ne- never, it's never over. It's, it's never ne- over because th- they have to create. They have to create a new type of human being, and if you're not willing to be created in their image, you will be destroyed on their altars.
3: What I find so fascinating about this entire worldview, which is an inherently postmodernist Marxist worldview, um, and and by, by the way, two things. First off we use the word woke to describe it we talked about this in our last podcast but as i told hamilton before we recorded today woke traditionally was a verb it was not the end state you became woke woke was an act of being and so we ended up taking the the verb and then and then applied it to the ideology Whereas you became woke, right? You came to this conclusion that society was built around power structures that benefited only white, you know, straight heterosexual, cisgender men, right? And and, and so the act of realizing that was you be, you 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 woke up to that fact. That's where that term comes from, the whole woke, wokeism. Um and and so but what I find so fascinating about that is why is why is your lived experience more valuable than mine? Seriously, if, if nothing, if we can agree on no common ground through which we can achieve the truth and everything is just relational and everything is just based on experience and your your entire worldview is that I have benefited from before I was even conceived mm-hmm. around an entire society that has been built by power structures that have intentionally been built to benefit me, right? That's your worldview. And what, what do you have to back it up? You don't have any evidence to back it up. You have experience right? You have narrative Mm -hmm. to back it up. So why is your narrative more valuable than my narrative?
0: Well, and that, and that's something, this is one of the things that I've always been a little bit.
3: (laughs) That's why, that is why it will end in violence, Nick.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're right. Because because
3: eventually the people that are told they're oppressors over and over and over again, will be like, I'll show you how much of an oppressor I really can be. That's how it will end. It, It, if, if the whole successor ideology movement, which again is a placeholder term, that's not yeah. what they call themselves, and that's what only a very few number of conservatives call them. But if that movement eventually succeeds at its end goal, which is seizing every single mechanism of power that they can get their hands on in order to remake society in their image and, and impose this, what, yes, uh, what Wesley Yang calls uh, authoritarian utopianism. If they get to that point, there will be a pushback. And if that pushback is not allowed to happen peacefully, it will happen violently eventually. And that is not a threat. That is a prediction of what will end up taking place.
0: No, it, it because it's a logical if, if you're going to tell, I mean, imagine if you're a younger person right now, you're a student or whatnot, and you're being constantly told that because of your race or because of your sex or because of the fact that you're heterosexual or whatnot, whatever it is, that you are complicit in a whole host of sins that you never directly committed. And the reason why you're complicit is because you have theoretically benefited from the structures that were put in place that did those things. And there's really no getting around it. There's really no ultimate redemption. Everything is a good first step, right? You can give them everything they want tomorrow. They'll come back to later and say, that was a good first step, but here's all the things that we want now. And if you don't do it, you're, you're just as bad as if you had done nothing. At some point, People are going to decide, I don't want to play this game anymore because, again, the cost-benefit analysis doesn't weigh up. You've told me that all morality is objective. You've told me that this is all about self-actualization. You've told me this is all about identity. And then you've told me that this is my identity and I can never be forgiven for things I never did. Okay, great. You want to play that game? Let's play. And you're going to find that you're going to raise a generation of people that have actually become the very thing that you said that they were and you created it. The left is going to create a generation of Andrew Tate's. No, no, it's not. It's going to create a generation of something so much worse. Andrew Tate says things a lot of times that I don't disagree with. And he says other things that I totally agree with. But Andrew Tate actually looks at this from a perspective is there is such a thing as objective morality. We may not agree on what that is, <laughs> what that is but he yeah. actually acknowledges that there is something that it, there is right and wrong. We may not agree oh, on all the things that are right or wrong. You think
3: it's going to get worse than they're that. They're
0: going to create something that is so much worse. They're going to create the very thing that they claim all of us are right now. They're, they're going to create the very people that are like, fine, it's all about oppressor or oppressed. Well, here's one thing I know. I don't want to be oppressed. And if my only other option is oppressor, then great, this is the world you want to live in. Let's work. Then I'm going to double down. Because again, if there's no redemption, if, there, if there's yeah. no, if there's no actual solution at the end where we get to peacefully coexist and I'm not constantly in trouble for things I never did. Well, if this is the world we live in, well, then I, I guess I better live it to the fullest. And that's dangerous because at that point you've essentially told them that this is, this is one of the things that I, I think is so impactful and incredible. It, it, it's, let me say this again. It's incredibly impactful when you properly understand it, that one of the most important messages of Christianity is the whole idea of redemption. It's also the idea that, yes, there is such a thing as sin, and yes, you can never be the ideal. You can't. You needed somebody to save you, and they did. And now, out of a sense of gratitude for that, you work to be the very, very best that you possibly can be. But within that paradigm, you also understand That everybody else around you is also flawed. That they're also dealing with their own specific demons. And so at the same time that you are are pushing to try to be best, to try to live up to that perfect standard, which you know you can't achieve, you also have an element of grace and mercy for the people around you that are on a different journey, but hopefully to the same location. And when you replace that with there is no redemption for you because of your skin color, because of your sex, because of what other systematic institution that I've created, that I've now assigned you with, that I've put on you as a permanent baggage. When there is no redemption, God help us for what people will conclude about what they can or should do with the rest of their lives. Because it ends up being very, very self-destruction in the best case scenario. And for those that feel absolutely dedicated to making sure that everyone else feels their pain as well, That's how you get things like the Holocaust. That's how you get things like Stalinist Russia. That's how you get things like horribly authoritarian regimes that don't seem to have any limit to the amount of atrocities that they can inflict on other people. Because after all, this is just the way it is. All right. I know we're coming up on the uh, the end here. So I, I want I wanted to do one thing to kind of close out here. Look, we I know that this is a complicated topic. And, and one of the things that we acknowledge right off the bat here is that it's very, very difficult to put this in a nice, neat definitions in part because we do live in a world where most of us have been educated and lived in a way where we look at certain concepts of classical liberalism as the way that we make sense of reality. And I don't accept this idea that these were all established by white. These were not established by white dudes. Let's just get that real quick. The whole idea is that the laws of logic, these are conclusions that people have come to at different spaces and times all over the world throughout history because it did the best job of explaining experience. And the biggest problems that we've gotten into is not by adopting those philosophies and understanding and, and, and those revelations. The biggest thing that's gotten in trouble is when we've tried to pervert them or when we've tried to ignore their very existence. And so I, I think it's important to understand the nature of what's going on here. It is, it is a form of rebellion, not just against the United States or not just against Western theories or philosophies. It's, it's a rebellion against reality itself because they see it as, as restricting them from achieving what they think reality could look like if they were just untethered by objective reality or objective morality. And it's not the first time it's been tried, and it never yields good results for anybody, to include the people that are trying to implement it. So, I hope we've given some definitions uh, with respect to things like authoritarian utopianism, with respect to things like successor ideology, which hopefully gives a a little bit more clarity to what it is that we're discussing right now, and and perhaps most importantly, the understanding that it, it doesn't seek it doesn't seek the ideology itself doesn't seek to have a conversation or peacefully coexist one will dominate over the other that's it the good news is is that ultimately you're not arguing against just an ideology you have the opportunity to engage with and talk with people and many times what you run into when you're when you're talking to somebody that is pushing this ideology you're going to find people that have a very, very thin intellectual veneer covering up a whole lot of personal pain. And sometimes if you can demonstrate a certain degree of empathy and you can sit down and you can talk about the underlying issues or why people have come to certain conclusions, then you really can have a meaningful conversation and you can get people back to reality and recognizing that it's, it's those processes that we use. That are actually beneficial and actually peacefully adjudicating differences, coming up with compromises, and when we can't, leaving each other in peace to live our lives and find our own path. Hope you found this episode helpful. Please let us know in volley what you think, and we look forward to seeing you next episode.
4: Thank you, Christian, for all the work. See everybody Thursday.
0: Real quick, real quick.
1: This is co producer Hamilton. Thank you for joining us. If you aren't already a member of our Volley Chat, I hope you will go to the link in the description of this show, introduce yourself, let us know who you are and where you're from. We look forward to meeting you. I think by the end of this episode, you're going to have a really good grasp on all the craziness going on here in the United States. I look forward to joining you along this journey to learn more about the subject.